Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was that the last time you toured, like two years ago? Yeah, the last gig we did was in um, LA in January last year. So almost, it would have been, yeah, a year and a half ago. Did you do a little bit of recording? Was In my arms, was that done over in LA? Uh, No, the the one that was done in LA, well, we worked, we yeah, we were working a bit with um, the producer Teed, uh, who has a studio out there. We were working just generally on bits and bobs of the record, um, getting his advice on stuff. And I think the main one that we did was I Do It For You, was the one we did the most on out there and then other stuff it was mainly just kind of talking and we played some shows and you know and also had a good old jolly as well yeah it's LA there's a kind of <laughs> I imagine there's a little bit of magic about it when you're just there for a short period mm, yeah it, it's it's a funny it's it's a funny place it's like I hadn't been I hadn't been to the states for since I was like 10 years old my dad used to do a lot of work out there he's like an he's a historian so he used to go and like work in um, universities out there and I remember visiting him in Chicago when I was like 10. And then I hadn't really been back since 28 now. So like I hadn't really been to America in like my sort of conscious memory. And LA is crazy. Like it's, it's I, I found it very fun. It's massive. Uh, the music industry is obviously all there. And it's, everything is just so big. I think that's, that was my takeaway thing. Like all the buildings that, you have that the, the agents are in and whatever look like banks you know um it's it's just like a different it's a it's like a culture shock you know like i've, I've done a lot of traveling around europe and i'm half colombian so i've been to colombia but I've, a lot and stuff but i haven't had like a proper culture shock traveling for ages and i, I definitely haven't to la just in terms well, what do you if you're oxfordshire as well i imagine you're quite rural so when you head over there and it's like skyscrapers i mean how does colombia compare to europe though is it, are they quite similar in terms or in terms of buildings no i mean no? no they're i mean it's very di- it's very very different um 
Colombia, I think my, my family's from on the coast. There's a place called Barranquilla and that's more like Miami or somewhere like that. It's got a kind of like American coastal feel. But then obviously, fundamentally, it's, it's got a very like Caribbean spirit. It's very beautiful. And my family from the coast, it's a very beautiful place, but it's also obviously very impoverished in places um, and doesn't have great infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. But it's very beautiful. It's got very warm people um, and it's, it's very hot and you're going to eat a lot of rice and plantains and fish. So yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful place. How many times have you been over there? A lot because I have a lot of family there. So, you know, more than I can count. Um, try, I try to go like every year, but obviously that's been a bit difficult recently. But I was there last time for one of my cousin's weddings uh, two years ago, I think. You said um, a few minutes ago you're 28. How old were you when you started the band? This band we started when I was 23, 24. Okay. So how, in terms of like the experiences that the record deals with, how much of that is kind of crossing over with the band period and how much maybe comes from slightly prior? I think, you know, most of it's, most of it's to do with... A lot of it's to do with the band period, and we were in a band before this band, um, which had a diff- which had another singer, and he left uh, the band, and the drum and a drummer also left, and then the, me, the bass player Jacob and Jamie, were still were, were uh, remained. Felix came on board, but, who was also an old friend. It's very it's sort of like very convoluted story which is actually quite boring to tell in terms of like <laughs> how, but like we were in a, but basically like to cut it short, we were in a band before with some of the people in this band. And then we made a new band with, mo- with those people and then also brought on Felix, but we already knew Felix He's an old school, very, very old school friend. And um, yeah, I started singing, hadn't done any singing before. Ever, like never even sang in school or anything. I no, I did like, the backing vocals, you know, the O's and the, the O's and the R's. Um, and that was about it. Yeah, we kind of put this, put this together, the four of us. Um, and the record really is, I guess, about that experience. It's kind of like when you form a band or when you do, I think when you go into anything in the arts, when you're in your, in your, like the, in your early 20s or late teens, you're like, you think that you're doing something really brave or you think it's very exciting and all of your friends might be doing slightly more conventional things, but you're like, you know, you think you're doing something exciting and something that's really cool. And then when you're 28 and you still can't make a living from being in a band, uh, you start and all of your friends start to kind of um, start to have a bit of security in their lives. And, you know, maybe they move in with a partner. Maybe they get a promotion. Maybe they uh, can put a deposit on a flat or something. And you're suddenly like, wow maybe that stuff was actually kind of great and maybe being an artist kind of sucks. Do you think you could have done that though? Probably not, but I think it's like, there's this, there's this kind of thing where you start, there's a good, there's a book called A Little Life, which, are, which was kind of one of the inspirations to find some of the lyrics in the record. And there's a line in it which says like, um, when, your ambitions, when pursuing your ambitions was once considered brave, it's now foolhardy. And I think you sometimes can feel like that. It's not necessarily that I want to have, it wanted to do more conventional jobs that I respect everyone who all of my friends who've done more I guess quote normal things but it's more that there's like a stability that comes with that that I think you didn't really care about when you were in your early 20s and then when you get to your late 20s some of that actually looks quite nice <laughs> um, so yeah it's, it's so the songs kind of like yeah they, they stay they, they, they're going over that period of, of 
someone who's sometimes me, but sometimes a kind of fictional character questioning the choices they've made in their life and wondering whether they they were the right ones. You kind of you touch upon that on ba 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 second last song on the album. Is it Space is Closing In? Is that the one where you kind of yeah. look at like an alternate life of what could have maybe been? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Space is Closing In, that's that one's inspired by um this generation of young men in Japan called the Hikikomori, who've all like shut themselves away in their bedrooms because they feel like they have they feel like they have somehow failed or fallen short of their expectations or their family's expectations. And yeah, about kind of considering all of these things that you could have been, you know? I wish I could have been this or that, but I'm this, and I'm not sure I'm happy with that. I could empathise in a way, because it's like, I think pursuing a career in, in music and in the arts generally is really, really hard. And so much of the time it's great and it's brilliant and you're having a great time but then a lot of the time it's really really difficult and i don't think anyone can blame you for sometimes thinking i could have been better off doing something else and i don't feel like i've made the best of this you start thinking about other things so i kind of really empathize with those guys were they also what inspired like the kind of uh shout out the sun show you know we had like the blinds at the back of the stage and say, okay yeah, yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah i'm a broken record <laughs> talking about the same stuff all the time do you fi- well that so that ep came out two years ago kind of t- or how where was that in the context of writing this album yeah. were they kind of occurring around similar times or yeah i think i think the thing with this album is it's like i think like a lot of first records it wasn't you know we didn't sit down in a room together and go we're gonna make an album and this is what it's going to be about. And uh, this is the deadline. We had released four EPs. I think you're right. Shout Out the Sun will have come out in 2019. End of summer probably though, a little bit later on. In the yeah, around, around, yeah, exactly. Sort of drip fed throughout 2019. I think we were like, we had a good 20 or so, maybe more demos. We were like, okay, th- p- probably now is the time to make an album. First of all, we have enough material. Second of all, um, you know, we can we feel like we can carve something out of this which has some kind of cohesion to it. And third of all, on a more you know, probably on a on a level that is less flashy to talk about, we kept on being told that if you don't release an album, no one's going to take you seriously. So we were kind of you know, it, it, there was a sort of needs must element to that as well. Who was telling you that? Just people in the music industry, you know. So it's, it's, I think yeah, it's we're in this really weird in this really weird phase at the moment where some people are like albums who cares about albums anymore it's a singles game and then other people and i think a lot of people who say that are people sometimes who are actually in the music industry but then those same people will will be like no one's going to play on the radio unless you start releasing an album you know or like no one's going to write about your band unless you release an album do you think it's the music industry that cares about albums rather than the general public perhaps i think the music industry cares about albums because it's this like shorthand to be like these are you know it's like it's it's this kind of language that everyone t- still talks in and it helps to put some context around an artist and it's still it's still this like grand statement and if you say you're going to record you're you're releasing an album then people want to get behind you etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think for me the album as a fa- both as a fan someone who's a fan of music and also someone who makes music I still think it's very valuable. Um, I love albums um, in terms of the way that you can create a, a broader narrative that you can uh, you can kind of 
be more disparate or you can create this journey which you can't on shorter form um, releases. Um, and also there's this whole like, creative world that comes with an album that you can't get on shorter form releases. You know, like you can, so much scope for with music videos and with artwork and stuff. And I don't think you get that with singles. And that's why I love it both as a fan and as someone who makes music. But I also totally understand, you know, people who just put out singles, like pop, pop musicians who put out singles and it's very regular and f- the fans love it. So I don't think there's right or wrong. Um, it's just what you like, you know. You mentioned something interesting there where you were talking about the way that you can construct a journey with it that you can't with just singles. Because it was a case of kind of looking back at everything you'd written and picking out tracks that could work for this, was it more a case of excavating the journey from things that you'd already written rather than constructing a new one? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was trying to work out what, what, this, what, the, what the kind of lyrical themes were and then taking it from there. Yeah, so it was about it was about create it was about creating a new sorry it wasn't about creating a new journey it was about creating something which felt cohesive within what was already there and I think we had kind of two records to be made there was a much more dancey record and then a more melancholic reflective record and that was the one we chose to make in the end. Oh, you said something earlier on as well. Well, obviously a lot of the, we were talking about the themes, a lot of that kind of centering around life in your 20s and kind of looking back upon that and processing that. When you were mentioning, you know, people kind of finding these means of stability at this point in their lives, whether that be getting a home or a family or whatever, did you find that the band was almost that for you sometimes when you were navigating your way through the, your 20s? Was it easy to have that vehicle to kind of center yourself around and hold on to? When yeah, was that, that was yeah, that was kind of all there was in a way. And then you try, and I think it's really difficult because you try to find, you try to find some kind, we're, all, we're always trying to find stability in our lives through something, or most of us are. What I've learned recently is that actually trying to, putting all of your eggs in one basket is like if you have a band or something, it's, it's so, everything is so fragile, not just in the music industry or the, in the creative world, but all over. If you are putting all of your sort of spirit and energy into this one thing that is very difficult to make into something which can actually earn your living and is tangible it, you are, you're making life quite difficult for yourself and then another thing that kind of crops up in the record is that other you know where what are the other places that people look for those sorts of things in well they look for it in love and their friends or whatever and i think the other part of the record is is about someone who is trying to find fulfillment also in love but never really getting there um, and so it was kind of that, I think that's a really important part of it as well, is that like one of the greatest antidotes to like self doubt or not really knowing necessarily who you are quite yet or what you're supposed to be doing can be love, be that friends or family or partner. But also when it comes to partners, that love is actually incredibly difficult to find. So yeah, there's this sort of really precarious thing going on, um, which definitely hangs over the record um, both in terms of like trying to make something trying to make various types of careers work which aren't quite quite getting there and then also trying to get some fulfillment from other places in life but also not really getting there either but never giving up hope i think that's 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 also important the record ends with that and the last word is yeah hope. exactly exactly could you also read it as love is just as fragile would that also be a reading of it in terms of what you're looking at there? Like you're saying the music's fragile and creativity can be, but love perhaps even more so. Love, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think, I think definitely. Um, 
and it's it's fragile and it's kind of it's everything isn't it it's fragile it's fulfilling it's beautiful and that's why i guess people spend so much time writing about it because it it, it it's every, it, there's everything is in you have everything in love to write about in a way i do it for you as an interesting one because that that song's almost about falling in love with the idea of love rather than the person themselves definitely that's what that song is about and trying to putting everything into trying to make love happen but actually for the sake of itself rather than for the sake of a, a, a sort of actually relationship that's worth pursuing you know and i think i think it's really easy to get caught up in that to be chasing a relationship or chasing anything really for the idea of it rather than for what it actually is um i think you can do that a lot it's like that that's not necessarily just with love but maybe with the job or or anything in your life which you think you should have so you, you you go after it but you don't actually think about whether the thing itself is something that you want yeah well I mean, it comes back to what we were saying about having a stable job and whether or not that would have worked because you could have that job but if you don't like it and it doesn't satisfy you and make you feel fulfilled it's kind of pointless exactly and i think and i think that's the thing is it's you have to be you have to give everything due consideration you know you, you, i don't think we can ever assume it that th- we, I don't think you can ever assume anything in life. You have to kind of always challenge it and be like, is this something that I want or is this something that I've been told that I need to have? That's also another, that's another part of the record, I think. You know, that's, I think the last song, What the Hell, is also dealing with that as well. It's like there are a lot of expectations or things that, we, that society tells us that we should do and that we should have. And we should always be questioning why, why do I, why, why am I being told that I need to have that thing? Why should I have that thing? Um, do I need it? Am I happy with it? Um, and I don't know if we ask those questions enough. After you've asked those questions, what do you identify as the things that you do need in life to make you fulfilled? That's a really good question. Um, I think this last, the last six months or the last, sorry, you know, the last year and a half has taught me a lot actually since the, the since the pandemic happened because it's i've started i know this sounds very cliche but i've just started really enjoying very simple things um like walking and cooking and stuff like most people and it's made me realize that you and you know we've been, it, whilst we've worked really hard on the band you have to massively modify your expectations because there's so few things that can actually happen you know you can't play any gigs you can't promote the record in the way you normally would it's really, in a way, the last year and a half has made me way less ambitious and much more appreciative of just much smaller things and how, how to get f- fulfillment out of those things, of your, you know, of your close relationships with your friends, with your family, um, and just small things, you know. And I think that's th- that if you can start from there, life is richer. And it would be interesting, you know, when you go back to life post-pandemic, if you're able to kind of implement them and keep them as a constant in your life so that you have that base level fulfillment there anyway. Yeah, I think, I think so. And I think that's going to be really interesting, isn't it, in general, not just with those, not just with your sort of spirit, let's say, but also just generally the way we do things now. You know, we do more things over, and some of the things are better, some of the things are worse. You know, everyone's allegedly shopping more locally. People talk about there being more community spirit 
you know, all I the good know things. And it's like, you don't know if you buy it. Well, I mean, I'm just Not wondering whether that would, thing. I really, <laughs> it's fair enough. I think it's, well, the, the reason I say that is because I, I always have come home for both the lockdowns to where I yeah. grew up after living in Glasgow. And I remember when I grew up here, everyone would, because it's like a small town, like 3,000 people or whatever, or village yeah. rather, everyone would say hello to each other in the street, you know, when you walk past them and it was very friendly. Yeah. And that's now absent. No one speaks to each other anymore. That's now gone since the start right. of the pandemic. Interesting. So actually it's done the reverse for, for you. <laughs> well, I, d- I wonder if it's maybe just a temporary thing while everyone's so depressed that we've got to stay inside all the time. Yeah, maybe. And not do anything. Yeah, it's, I think... And that's, I think that's also really important is that everyone, we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume any universal experiences here. Um, everyone has experienced this very differently. I guess I've, I, I think I was at my family home for the first lockdown and definitely was more, there was definitely community spirit on my road like I hadn't seen before. Um, but you're right. I mean, I guess it just totally depends on where you are. I just, I guess I just wonder to what extent any of this stuff will carry on, to what extent we'll go back to normal or to what extent, you know, whatever has changed the good things and the bad will continue is it to me it's a really interesting um question yeah i feel like only recently i've kind of given up the hope of returning to what was before and realizing that there's no path back but a path forward rather okay yeah that's that yeah i mean you what you because you feel like that this is sort of whatever's happened is now cemented a new reality that yeah i think so yeah. And there's a lot of things that have happened that we can't go back to. Both for positive and good. If you look at like, the social change that's happened in the last year, a lot of really positive stuff that's gone on there mm. in terms of the protests and people kind of really trying to, particularly with the Black Lives Matter thing, it feels like it's less temporary than before. Yeah. Hopefully. I, yeah, you, you'd hope, I think. And there's, uh, the question for me on all those things is whether, this, whether all that change has actually filtered through to meaningful results. Like, you know, are there actually, are, 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 the, are these things being discussed in board meetings? Are there changes in the structures of companies and the way people are doing things? Or is it just still uh, a sort of surface level social media movement? That's something I just don't really know. I think it's impacted our kind of generation and our kind of age group to a certain degree. And it maybe will just take time, but it, you know, it'll just as all things do. By the time maybe in twenty years, when a lot of the people who don't hold those values are no longer here, we might start to see that shift because it'll keep trickling down to the generations below us. Yeah, you're right. I think it's a there's definitely a, a long game in, that's going on as well. That there's that the attitude shift that's happened will hopefully uh, play out over the course of, as you say, the next twenty, thirty years, and will then filter through to another generation, to another generation. So you're right that there's a longer term thing going on. When when you were making this record, did it almost feel like a lockdown? Because you did it in rural France. Were you quite isolated for that bulk of the process? Yeah, there was no... We didn't see anyone else for the whole thing. We, may, we, were, there for, we were there for like three weeks, I think. Uh, and we didn't see anybody, really. Apart from someone, you know, like someone at the checkout in the, in the small local supermarket. Um, and then there's a really good video. I say really good. I mean, it's a video of us <laughs> in the studio, and uh, it's the day that Boris Johnson uh, well, it doesn't announce the lockdown. I think because that was the week later, but was saying, you know, the big speech about finally acknowledging that coronavirus was was actually a massive problem. 
<laughs> and it's in our, and it's in us and it's we were in the studio in France and there's we just kind of loaded him up. It was like the you remember it was like the first proper ministerial address. Yeah, it felt like it came very late in the day. Yeah, and he he was there and we were sitting in the studio in this tiny little place in France and the whole world was just melting down. And it was a very weird feeling because you know like you know we would go on Instagram and see all the stuff from people you know people being in empty supermarkets in London. France was closing its borders every country was closing its borders and we were just kind of in this little little town in France, a little village in France. As far as you concerned, as you were concerned, nothing was going, nothing was happening. I think that's quite positive though. That's something that I've been saying recently is that even if it ever feels like the world is ending, just go outside. And it's like everything's still there. Everything's still, sky's still blue. There's still trees, you know. It's like on a very tangible level, nothing has really changed, but just quite refreshing. Yeah, yeah. There's, I think the constancy of like, of, um, nature and all the things you're describing are, can be both comforting and maddening as well can't they like when something terrible happens you almost feel like you want the world to acknowledge it and be like come on something terrible's happened you need to you need to realize this um but then as you say it's also very comforting as well where was the cover of this record shot because it's on a very kind of stark landscape that feels quite I guess in a similar way to what we're saying, they're kind of immortal. Like that's been, that landscape's been there for thousands of years, millions of years. Yeah. And we'll yeah, for millions to come. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. It's, it's, it's actually just shot in, it's just shot in just outside of Oxford, central Oxford, in a place called Port Meadow. Yeah, it was me, the model guy called Kuba. Uh, he's like a stage manager for classical orchestras, originally from Poland, from Gdansk. And then the photographer was an amazing woman called Evelyn Van Ray, who's usually a um mostly a dop she shot lots of music videos for people like ghost poet um japanese japanese house and stuff like that and now she's moving into more sort of filmic territory so it's just me her and kuba and jamie wasn't able to be there for the shoot jamie in the band but he built the raft uh and so i was kind of standing waist deep in the water pushing kuba around in the on the raft and he was getting photographed and yeah it was just us three and it's it's just literally 15 minutes from where I grew up. What were you hoping to convey with it? It was, th- there was an original photo that inspired it by this photographer I love called Peter Hujar. He made, he, it's the photo he, took called, the photo he took called Italian Reverie. And there's this little boy in a pair of pants sitting on a piece of styrofoam floating out to sea. I just always really loved that image. There was like a freedom to it, but a fear, something about kind of going out into the unknown. And just a lot of that, lot of the things I was thinking about when we made the record were in that photo, and I showed like it to heading Evelyn. out of your twenties. Yeah, yeah, and I showed it to Evelyn, and I was just like, I really like this picture. I don't want to recreate it exactly, but you know, there's something in it that I that I think really resonates with the album. And so, yeah, we sort of tried to try to kind of take that on board, and I think, yeah, there's the things we we're talking about, kind of a sense of going into the unknown. Uh, a sense of frailty and fragility um, and a sense of like time feeling a little time feeling kind of endless but also precious but you know after all it, it is ultimately just a guy a naked man sitting on a raft so it's up <laughs> it's up to you what you what you see in it <laughs> it's interesting what we're you know we're talking about the idea of kind of heading into the unknown like looking forward i like this quote that i read um while back where they say that the second 20 years of your life are spent trying to figure out what happened in the first 20. Is that a fair assessment, would you say? I, I, yeah, I mean, let's, 
Yeah, I think probably. I think about all this stuff a lot and I think that it's, we are just so not emotionally prepared for things to come. We're prepared for so many other things, but no one really, or certainly not in my life, sits you down and goes, this is how it's going to feel when this happens or when this happens. This is how it's going to feel when you fall out of love. This is how it's going to feel when you fall in love. This is how it's going to feel when, you know, and obviously this is how it's going to feel when you don't quite succeed at the thing you have been putting all of your time into. We're left very much like to fend for ourselves when it comes to things, when it comes to like emotional learning, I think more true for some people than it is for others. And so, yeah, the second, I think so much of the time we're having to look back over past experiences, like what you described the first, your first 20 years, and then try to figure out what that means to your next 20 years. Obviously, no one can really simulate what, you know, falling in love feels like falling out of love, not succeeding. Specific to everyone, yeah. Yeah, it's specific to everyone, but, but you could at least get some guidance. We're still not very emotionally fluent, I, I don't think. No, we're still not at a point where we kind of talk about our feelings fully, openly. I think, I think so. And it's like, I think so, things that will, are inevitable, in, inevitable in our lives, like the things I've just described, often will still come as a surprise. And I think that is what I, I'm getting at. Is that like, we, not that we should expect terrible things to happen or great things to happen, but that we should, we should be mindful that they exist and that life is this kind of meandering thing. I just feel like we could be more open about, more open about that. Yeah. It's, it's weird that when you look back on high school and stuff and how they never really tell you how much of a shit show it is. Like the, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. world's all over the place and you're kind of, you kind of just get thrown into it in a weird sort of way. That, I think that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, you know, I was very lucky to go to university and no one, ever, no one told me how, for example, how difficult actually that first year is. Everyone said it was going to be great, but actually it can be incredibly scary and really challenging. And I think sometimes we shy away from having those discussions and we're like, he'll work it out, you know. He'll, we'll just chuck him in the deep end and watch him sort of scramble around for a bit and hopefully he'll learn how to swim. No, everyone and, does though. And, and, that, that's and, that, the problem. and that's the thing, yeah. And it's like, I think we just need, when it comes to these challenging emotional moments in life, it wouldn't hurt for us to be educated about them a bit more, to talk about them a bit more, and to feel like we have got some tools at our disposal to deal with them and to be prepared that, 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 that something might happen, something might go wrong, and that's okay. Um, it's not your fault. You're going to get through it. And I know that all sounds really trite, but I think it's really important. Does it breed, does not having the guidance and having to figure it out yourself breed a certain type of perseverance in a way as well, though? That's, I think, definitely true. But like you say, it's, that's, it's case law, isn't it? It depends who you are. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I just tend to find that, you know, the more that you can kind of talk about openly about whatever it might be, you know, about, We've spoken a lot about love, but I don't know. It could be about sex. It could be about um, job choices. It could be about... Um, you spoke quite openly this week on social media about rejection. About rejection, yeah. It could be about rejection. You know, and as soon as you do that, everyone breathes a sigh of relief because they're like, oh yeah, that, that's what happens. Um, and it's okay. If you don't do that, how can we expect anyone, how can we expect people to, to feel like when that happens, 
it shouldn't be something that's really distressing or shocking. It's just, it's natural. How can we expect anyone to be okay with that unless we don't if, if, talk openly about it? One of the other things I saw you speaking about on social media is that there's this interesting kind of paradox where, where you might go into meetings, you know, with labels or managers or, or booking agents. And there's this kind of elephant in the room where they're all making a living from this. And a lot of the time, the bands that they're working with aren't. They can't make money off of this. Uh, how, do you f- how do you frame that in your mind so that you can deal with that in a healthy way and not let it get you down and kind of make you a little bit better? Because it's a pretty <laughs> unfair truth. It's, it is, it's difficult, I think. And sometimes you do feel bitter because you're, you're only human, you know? And I think that's really important as well. It's like sometimes people are ugly, including me including maybe you <laughs> sometimes we, sometimes we don't feel sometimes we don't feel sometimes we don't feel admirable things and yeah sometimes you do kind of feel a bit pissed off about the whole thing because it's this weird perverse system where like there are all these jobs that all have salaries that all depend on people making stuff and the last people who make any money is the people who make the stuff until they're suddenly wildly success, successful i think the way i would deal with it is that like or the way we did deal with it is we've gone as independent as probably you can be um we're proud of that also just to think that like as long as we're proud of what we're making and what we're doing if it does or doesn't work out then at least we believe in the stuff in the things that we've made and you stuck to your guns yeah and you stuck yeah and you, st- and you stuck to it yeah um, but it's, 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 it's difficult. It's a very weird, the music industry is just really weird. It's, I mean, it's just really, really strange, you know, I th- and art in general is really strange because it's this thing which requires so much effort and in a lot of instances, so much skill, devotion, and it really, for, for the most part, sits outside of any kind of like economic system. It's the streaming system doesn't pay artists like this. It, it just doesn't unless you're streaming millions and millions and millions of streams you know and similarly if you're an artist you could have mil- you know thousands of followers on instagram as i mean like a visual artist but you might not be making any money from it so it's like and does that does that mean that you failed or does that just mean that the, there's a system in place that doesn't acknowledge that hasn't worked out really how to uh, formalize your what it is that you do yeah it's also about a lot of it is people doing favors for other people. It's that age old thing, isn't it? It's who you know, not what you know. Yeah, totally. And that's the other thing is like, you know, the being in the creative world is so much about connections and about how to make those connections do something for you. There's no point in pretending that, that it's any other way. We're kind of touching upon as well the idea of what do you stand for? Mm. This idea of constantly, you know, comparing yourself to other people through instagram or just social media in general i suppose yeah i think so i think so that's the other thing that is such a difficult challenge these days is this comparison game that we can all play that could be if you're just you know and just someone who uses instagram to post about their life and you can look at someone else who who posts about their life and they have more followers and they get more likes or whatever and it can be a band you can go on spotify and see Spotify's the, the worst now. Did you see the update yeah. they put out yesterday? What's that? I should I should know. <laughs> I, <On> the, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but on the desktop one, they updated it yesterday so you can now see the streaming on every single song. So instead of it just being your top songs, if you click on an album, you see the numbers like 
right next to it now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's that's not great. I didn't realize they'd done that. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. Well, exactly. So it's like I've always wondered that as well. Like, why do you need to show the play counts? Do you do you have an answer to that? No. Well, they spoke about removing it about a year ago, and now they seem to have gone the other way and just upped it and gone more full blown with it. But why? I just wonder why. There's because there's got to be a reason. I mean, I know why Instagram has a like function because that's what keeps everyone on it. You know, maybe the play function is the same. I don't know. There's got to be a reason because it's like you don't. If you're again, it's, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If you really challenge something and think about it, you're like, why does why does that exist? Like, why do we need to see the play counts? Why is that important? Well, you don't on like television. Like, if you yeah. look on a TV channel, you don't see how many people are watching it. Netflix are very cagey with their numbers. They don't like to say how much. Yeah. Something's been watched. So I don't it really get it. it real, yeah. Realistically, from an artistic point of view. What, seeing the numbers or not seeing the numbers? I think so. Seeing I think, the numbers, okay. I think if you showed, I think monthly listeners, I can understand if you're trying to gauge the size of a band from a music industry point of view, but I don't really understand why you see the numbers on every single track. Yeah, yeah, I don't really get it. And also the other thing is, is that so much of that, st- I don't really know how much that stuff's even real, like... You know, you can literally like buy views and plays on all these platforms now. So, what are we even? What are we even looking at? I don't. Sometimes I don't even know if it, that stuff's real. I sometimes I don't know what it means. Even with our own thing, I'm obviously thrilled that we have however month. You know, we have like at the moment 140,000 monthly listeners. It's not. It's not. It's not Drake, but it's it's not bad going. But I still don't really know what that means, and that's what's really difficult when you uh, are not playing shows. Because you're just looking at these these massive numbers, and you're like, are those are they are they fans? Are they just listening to me on some like relaxed playlist, or who are they? And I think that's why shows are so important because it's like this is a real experience. These are people who have come to your show, they bought a ticket, and they clearly know at least one of the songs. And streaming is so weird because you just don't, you just don't know. Can it be alienating when you just see those numbers with no tangible yeah. connection to them? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, to- totally. And, it, and also it just very, yeah, it's, as I say, it's very unquantifiable in, ironically because it's, you can be doing thousands and millions of streams, but that might not mean that anyone is going to come to a show. It's this weird thing where like nothing, it doesn't, things don't necessarily, yeah, there's no formula, but also things don't necessarily communicate with one another. You know, we were talking about this in the band the other day. You can have loads of Instagram followers, but that might not mean anyone's listening to you on Spotify. You have loads of Spotify followers, but that doesn't necessarily mean anyone's going to come to a show. It's weird. It's very strange. I remember when the Biabadubi album came out and if you look, I think she's got like whatever, like one point whatever million Instagram followers. Yeah. And there were songs in the album that didn't even have that many listens, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like you've got all these followers, but are they more invested in you as like an idea, as a personality, rather than the music and the art itself? I think, well, I mean, this, but the, I think this is a really interesting conversation because like why, again, artists, musicians having Instagram is like, a very, to me, is a very strange concept because Instagram is a visual platform. You can't upload more than a minute worth of, video on your feed so you can't upload even a whole track so like it's not a friendly platform for musicians and it means that you basically what you are on instagram is a personality rather than your music and so you could be in a situation where you're following an artist because you think they're funny and they're cool but you might not give a shit about their tunes 
Can I, swear, um, can I swear on this, by the way? Kind of blew up fear. Those funny videos that he used to post. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you know, I, I think I, I think even we followed Lewis Capaldi for a bit. I, I, you know, respect to the guy. I think he's great, but I don't, I'm not a fan of his music. And that, but that's a very good example. You know, it, we were talking about it the other day, and this is obviously a bit kind of facetious and silly, but it's like, imagine saying to um, a visual artist, like, your main platform in which you have to engage with people is Spotify. <laughs> that's sometimes how I feel as a musician on Instagram. So I'm like, I'm not, I make music. <laughs> like, you know, you know, that's, this isn't my, this isn't my scene. You know, it's just, it's really weird to me sometimes, but I think I think about it, overthink it too much. And then that's when you're in real trouble. Yeah. It is an odd one though. With the song, what do you stand for? The way that you kind of, the delivery of that, it's like you're firing on all cylinders and kind of, expressing what you want to say about a lot of different topics that are very relevant to kind of our generation and the issues surrounding it was it all written in the one session did it kind of just unfurl lyrically or was a lot of diff pulling from a lot of different places it started from a meeting that we had with someone from a record label who asked that question uh and we she was like who she said to she said to us you know i just i I just who are you and what do you stand for in the meeting? And it just got stuck, kind of stuck with me for quite a while. It's an interesting question. It's a, it is an interesting question. And it was a question that we also, often used to get asked in meetings because people were like, we don't really, people are like, oh, we don't really get your band. Is it like, you know, is it six music? Is it Radio One? Is it mainstream? Is it pop? Is it indie? Is it dance music? And so they would always ask us those questions. And I never had a good answer ever, which is probably why we we're not signed. <laughs> that might also uh, be a good sign though if you can't maybe it. maybe uh yeah we'll see we'll see <laughs> um but it was so it started from that of having a conversation with someone and then it was almost there was a sort of indignance and it was it and it started by almost me kind of asking the question back because it was like well uh, you know we've made we you know we've made music you've heard it you know do i have to what is it my job to spell it, that out to you or you know actually is that is it your job to try and assimilate what we've put in front of you so it started with it started with that and then it kind of grew out of like i guess a bit of an ugly contempt for the sort of sceney side of the industry people who are just sort of hangers on and uh, they're always backstage at the festivals um and they're always uh looking over your shoulder at the industry drinks drinks party waiting to chat to the more interesting person and they're always talking about LA for some reason. Um, Saying what about LA? It's how amazing it is. I and listen, I said that earlier, so guilty as charged. <laughs> but these, but these, these, these fuckers are all just always talking about, you know, writing sessions in LA. Like I was saying earlier, you know, sometimes you feel ugly things, and that song is born out of the feeling of ugliness, of kind of like a bit of con- you know, a feeling of contempt for these sort of music industry scenesters who we often had to sit down and sit down with in meetings and just be like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like justify contempt though. Well, maybe listen, uh, listen, that's, I can't, I can't be the judge of that. That's how it's I felt inter- at the time though. We were speaking about this in the <laughs> podcast the other week because the way that kind of gets portrayed to you when you first come in is that these people enter the music industry as good people and they kind of get corrupted by the systems that are in place. But you see it at a local level as well. You know, those guys are in there from the start. It's not the music industry that corrupts them. It's them that corrupts the music industry. 
Just saying. That, I think that's that. I think that's a really, really important point. Yeah, it's it's probably a bit of both. You know, I think again, the music industry is weird because it's like it's there are a lot of jobs. It's there are a lot of formal jobs which have salaries and working hours and stuff like that. But it's a very informal space because it's music. You know, and because also what you're dealing with. You know, there's no there's no there's no um hiding the there's no hi, there's no secret that like someone at a record label or something for example is called a product manager they manage the product and who is the product the, the musicians the artists we're products but because we're people unlike we're not you know we're not a bottle of shampoo we're just not, we're people you're spoken about in different it's spoken about differently and sometimes i think in a way it almost frustrates me that people in the music industry try, try to talk in this very like humane way about about music and they say oh you know we just we love we, we we sign acts because we love them or whatever and 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 really ultimately it boils down to the fact that the artists are to them the artists are products and they are products to be sold um so there's a lot of things going on in the music industry which is like okay you've got for you've got a formal space of jobs offices working hours but you've also got it's also informal because the thing that you're dealing with is art and music and uh, it's very often very, you know, connected to young people and youth culture. But then also it's business, but it's not business. It's business in the sense that you are selling a product, but it's not business because your products are people. So you shouldn't talk about them as products. Um, so it's very, there's a lot of conflicting things going on. I think that's what leads to this, to these weird personalities who are like, on the one hand, business people, on the other hand, socialites and whatever it's just yeah it's a very weird space it's such an un- i think the side of the mindset you're talking about where they speak about artists as products it doesn't stop there like once you have that mindset it's such an unhealthy thing to be in possession of that it then goes on to anyone who's below you really like a lot of these people speak about booking agents or promoters in the same way that they would speak about the artist as a product and they stop kind of they just view them as a cog in the machine as opposed to an actual person who's trying to work at something if that makes sense yeah i, I think so yeah and it's yeah, it's a, it's it's a really it's difficult. I think I think I think the creative world has is grapp is grappling with that a lot. Is that it's it's always trying to it's always at this point of it's always at this kind of point of um, tension where it's like it doesn't want to be about money, but ultimately it, it is, and it's it doesn't have a word. choice. And it do, and yeah, exactly, and it is, and it doesn't have a choice. But it doesn't want to acknowledge. It doesn't want, ever want to acknowledge that, and it's and that always creates these sorts of tensions that we're talking about. It's like you don't want to talk about money, but it's it's always there. It's like it goes back to what you were saying to me earlier. You know, it's like you're in the room, and and to me as an artist, it's like is it cool for me to interview to say, you know, I wouldn't mind making a living from from music, um, and everyone's like, oh, you know, we all do it because we love it. And I'm like, yeah, we do, but it would also be nice if we could make a living. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they're um, on a salary, even yeah, if they love yeah. what they do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the people yeah, you say, like, yeah. yeah, people you're saying it to are. Yeah, exactly. And I th- and I I think that is also a bit of a weird conversation that goes on sometimes. It's like just keep doing what you're doing, man. You do it because you love it. And it's like, yeah, but you know, it would be nice if we could get paid for doing what we love. Who says that to you though? Is that like people who are making a living from the music industry that tell you you do it because you love it? Not necessarily. I think it's just a conception amongst everybody that it's so you know. It's just different people. It's not necessarily a particular group of people. But I think there is this sometimes, you know, and again, people probably might hate this, what I'm about to say, but 
I think there's this mistake. There's a mistaken pride in just saying we do it because we love it and we don't care about the money. No, and and because it's therefore assumed that you want to be stinking rich. I'm not interested in being filthy rich. I'm just interested in like having a stable income, you know. Um, and I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, and I think in a way, sometimes like wanting to uh, want talking about money or wanting to earn money in the arts is this kind of like it's a sort of no go zone. And I think, as to be fair, I think it's got better. And the last year, when the whole with this whole streaming issue, with the Depart- Department of Culture, Media and Sport, and the whole kind of committee around music streaming, there's been a real conversation which I think has sort of grazed like the public consciousness about how little streaming pays artists. And I think that's been a really good conversation. I, I, there's no better example to me than Nadine Shah saying that she over the lockdown had to move back home with her parents because she couldn't afford to pay rent. It's like this is an established artist who's been nominated for the Mercury Prize, you know, and she, she's, she can't make a living from music. So something is profoundly wrong is going on here. You know what I mean? And she's like three albums in as well. It's not like she's someone who's been Mercury Prize nominated last year for her first album. Well, exactly. And it's like, well, I think, again, it's one of those things. It goes right back to what we were saying in the beginning. We assume, it's an assumption that, you know, oh, you're involved in music you're involved in art you're involved in whatever it might be and you know just the reality is you're probably not going to make any money but why it's, it doesn't have to be that way because certainly be better that's what all of those uh, conversations in those uh, committees were about as how this could be improved you know you wonder how long it's going to take but well, i think soundcloud just changed their model didn't they their soundcloud just, model, yeah. exactly soundcloud just changed their model yeah so you you pay you're paying for the artists that you listen to. Which makes total sense. Which makes sense, yeah. <laughs> why, why, surely it's like that, what, you, that, it's like yeah. what you were saying about questioning, why do we see the view can? Yeah, and it, all it takes is for someone, it's like, all it takes is for someone just to, it's, it's, you know, it's like, there's this really fucking bright light shining on one thing and, and it's like you can't, we can't see either side of it and all it takes is for someone just to slightly move it and everyone's like, oh, wow, that's, why do we think of that? You know? Um, and it's so obvious, but, but the reason it doesn't change is because there's so many, so many different powers in play and so many different people in play. It's very difficult to... Too many vested interests. There's too many vested interests and, you know, and also the people who could change things don't necessarily want to because it doesn't suit them, you know, and like in a way, sometimes you're like, well, okay, who can blame, you know, I, I can't necessarily blame you for that because it might be that if we change the way certain economic models work it's not going to be beneficial to you but that's what political difference is i guess <laughs> yeah but i mean it's like spotify you hear everyone harping on about the guy there and he's the one who kind of gets all directed at him but it's like the major labels let this happen they kind of allowed this to happen to the music industry yeah and, and because they wanted to make money because they realized they weren't making anything off records anymore and they knew they could make some cash off street yeah exactly so it's it's never and that's another important point it's never simple and we always we always want to make things really simple, so we just choose, often choose one target and throw all the darts at it. But in the reality, in reality, it's you know, it's a lot of there are so many different people in this game who are, who could be doing things to make it better rather than sustaining something which is, in my opinion, unsustainable for artists. What's the most important lesson you learned from your twenties so far? I should have an answer to this question, shouldn't I? Because of <laughs> the tagline of the fucking album. The most important lesson I learned from my twenties, or one of, there's probably one of, one of. Oh yeah, that makes me feel less on pre- under pressure. 
um, I think I think the most important. I think for me, the most important lesson was stop worrying about the future, the, and stop being so fraught about what's going to happen, and care about what is what is happening. And I know that sounds so cliche and whatever, but it's and it's also so obvious. But that's a, something I've been. And that's the thing, man. I think so much stuff is easier said than done. And it takes so long to realize it until something sort of, something kind of seismic happens or something changes or just time passes. And there's a real cruelty in that. It's like, but I think that there's a sort of real like fraughtness, at least to my early 20s, who are so worried about how something, you know, how things were going to turn out. And I stopped, and, I, and, and that came at the expense of actually enjoying myself. I just wish I, you know, if the, that's the main lesson I've learned is that like you, you have no control really over those things. And if you can just enjoy the journey, and that's what Ed O'Brien in Radiohead said, which I always remember, he was like, the, he said, the journey is everything. Imagine if you pursued this, uh, pursue a career in music, pursue a career in journalism, pursue a career in whatever, and you never quite got there. And for the whole thing, you would just, worrying the shit out of the fact that you might not get there what then what the hell was it all for do you know what i mean yeah that's kind of what i always say you know whenever you go back home and you see friends from home that aren't in the music industry and people were speaking about the start maybe are doing other things with their life and they always kind of question whether you're ever going to get a job in this and it's like well i don't know but at the end of the day i'm probably going to spend 10 or 15 years doing something i really love exactly time as long and that's the thing as long as you have that attitude and enjoy it i think for me and you're, you've got the right attitude. For me, I think I was so worried about it working out uh, or becoming something that I was not enjoying myself. Um, and I think that was, and that's, was the real problem. It was like, I was so anxious about, and also because I, you know, we were in a situation where we were still in our hometown and everyone had, all my friends, my siblings had left to move to other places, mostly London, to do other things. And we, there were, you know, there, there were not many other distractions other than just worrying all the time about whether this thing was going to work. And I think if, you, if you're just spending your whole time worrying about it and not actually enjoying it, then you're in real trouble. Do you enjoy it more now? Yeah, I do. A lot, so much more. Because honestly, because I'm, I'm not, I'm much, I'm still worried, but like I'm much less worried about how things can turn out. I'm more worried about just having fun with it. and you know, making sure they're having a good time. So I, I'm, I'm, I enjoy it way more now. And, I, and, and in a good way, like I said earlier, I'm, less, I'm much less ambitious than, than before. Way less ambitious. I was so worried when I was in my early 20s about uh, so many things and I just wish I hadn't been. <laughs> I'm still worried. I still worry about a lot of stuff, don't get me wrong, but not to that level. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.